Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about agriculture and the environment with Dr. Patrick Moore. How are you doing today, Patrick? I'm just fine, Matthew, here in British Columbia on Vancouver Island on a beautiful sunny day with the mountains covered in snow. I'm jealous. <laughs> One of my favorite places I've ever been is there. You guys have incredible seafood, that's for sure. But we're here to talk about pork. All right. So what I'd like to do is just have you introduce yourself and your background and uh, go from there. Well, Matthew, I grew up on this island, Vancouver Island, which is the largest island on the west coast of the Americas from Alaska to Argentina, which not many people know. It's 300 miles long and nearly 100 miles wide, and it's mostly mountains, but I grew up on a floating village on the very northwest tip of Vancouver Island. It was my dad's logging camp. And in those days, you had to move the camp from place to place on the water to get closer to where the trees you were cutting. And uh, so that that was quite an interesting childhood. You, there, there was a box full of life jackets at the kitchen door, and you put it on before you left the house. And... And so it was unusual in that way. And then we moved ashore, the whole village, all the buildings were on floats, but they're also on skids, so they could be moved. And we moved ashore in 1954 in Winter Harbor. Uh, There was no road to the village I grew up on. And when the road finally came in 1965, I was in my teens, we thought the place would boom. Half the people used the road to get out. So, you know, human nature is interesting sometimes. Uh, But today, Winter Harbor is a thriving little community of about 50 people. Uh, And uh, when I met Eileen, my wife of nearly 50 years, uh, we went there uh, after I got my PhD in ecology at UBC. And I kind of dropped out a little bit. Uh, I was told during my ecology PhD years that I should perhaps change the nature of my inquiry if I wanted to get a job in business or government when I graduated. And I, as a kind of young Turk, uh, thinking I was, you know, able to conquer anything in the world, I just said, to heck with that. I'm continuing with the nature of my inquiry. It was about a huge copper mine and the, and, and the tailings it was depositing in a big inlet near where I grew up. It's a long story. But anyways, I just went back to the land kind of thing. Uh, with Eileen and we built a a cedar house on the beach cut the wood ourselves in my dad's sawmill and it was a real pioneering sort of situation Uh, it was almost like I was a hundred years later than most people that had grown up uh, in civilization and and but I was sent to boarding school in Vancouver learned to be a city kid and uh, spent most of my life living there but going back to my home uh, on the north end of Vancouver Island four or five times a year and uh, for holidays and such. 
And uh, then uh, four or five years ago, we moved from Vancouver to Comox here on Vancouver Island, which is one of the few agricultural zones on the island. It's a beautiful place. There's lots of farming here and lots of meat production here, too, along with all the vegetables. So uh, it's a it's a wonderful place to be. And in the background there is is the view from my home on Comox Harbor. Uh, that's the Quiniche Glacier. And if you think this is uh, about 50 degrees latitude here, so it's not much more than halfway to the North Pole from the equator. And huh. still, still it is cold here in the winters, and there's snow all winter on these mountains right through to the spring. And people who think the Earth is getting too warm should take note of that. Uh, actually, we're living in in a very cold period in Earth's history right now. And CO2 has dropped to one of the lowest levels it's ever been in the history of the Earth not that many years ago during the last major glaciation. So people don't seem to to realize that we are still in the Pleistocene Ice Age and people are telling us it's getting too hot. It hasn't been this cold for 250 million years since the previous Ice Age, which was the Karoo, which lasted 100 million years. This one's only 2.6 million years old, according to the stratigraphers in the International Stratigraphy uh, Organization. And they claim the Pleistocene is over. They've, they've adjusted the ages of the Earth to make this interglacial period an epoch, which is what the Pleistocene is. So there's, this is apparently a new epoch, when in fact it is one of about 40 garden variety interglacial periods that have occurred during the Pleistocene. So we need to get people to understand the history of the earth, because if you go back and look at the history of the earth, like before 1850, which is about all people want to talk about, they say that before 1850 was the pre-industrial era. Yes, that was near, you know, 4 billion years of pre-industrial era. And now we have this only most important time since 1850, when we are threatening the earth's destruction with global warming and climate change crisis, and catastrophe, and emergency. And it's all a crock. So might as well start letting people know my opinion on that subject. (laughs) No, I appreciate the honesty and the transparency. I think one thing I'd really like to jump into as we're talking about agriculture and the environment is what areas of sustainability and the environment has become a huge topic. And in agriculture, a lot of people would say, well, we've been focusing on sustainability ever since we've started. How do you do more with less? But what areas of the environment that are being talked about do you think hold water? And which ones do you think are a hoax? Well, the, the climate change uh, catastrophe is definitely a hoax. There's simply no doubt about it in historical records. It, there, there is no strong correlation between CO2 and temperature in the long-term historical record. When they are in sync with each other, it's probably either just a coincidence or because there are underlying factors which affect both of them to move in the same direction. And that would be the sun uh, and and warming and cooling caused by solar uh, differences is one uh, alternative explanation. The truth is we know so much less than 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 we should about what causes the small changes in climate like the ones that are happening now. We know we've been in a warming period since 1700. That was the very peak of the Little Ice Age when there were a lot of crop failures and starvation. It was a tough time. 
And that, that's when the River Thames froze over regularly. And they had big ice parties out there in London. It hasn't frozen over since 1814, before we started emitting large yeah. amounts of CO2. So just in the recent history, it, it's totally contradictory to the idea that we are the ones causing this warming period, because there was a warming period in the Minoan times, in the Roman times, in the medieval times, and now today. These are like thousand-year cycles from one peak to the other of warming and one peak of cooling to the other. We don't know the cause of these cycles. They're very small compared to the large cycles that have occurred in the Earth's history on the longer time spans. We happen to be, for an ice age, in at least a moderately pleasant climate because it is an interglacial period where the, the huge glacier that covered Canada and most of the northern tier U.S. states in a mile or three of ice during the last, you know, 20,000 years ago, that was the situation. And it appears as though most of the interglacial periods have been about 10,000 years long. So we're, according to the previous ones, which we know very well from the Antarctic ice cores, uh, we, it appears as though we are at the end of this interglacial period and slowly beginning the downward trend of temperature into the next major glaciation, which would be 80,000 years from now. So we don't need to uh, hurry about anything with regard to that. Uh, but it will continue to go up and down, going a little bit colder on each down uh, and a little bit less warm on each up. So it, there's cycles on cycles on cycles in the global climate. And some of them don't make any sense to us at all. They aren't even regular, like the ice ages are not in a regular pattern. Uh, this one started 2.6 million years ago after a 50 million year cooling period. And who knows that? 50 million years ago, it was called the Eocene Thermal Maximum. It was 15 million years after the dinosaur extinction, almost certainly caused by an asteroid impact, which had nothing to do with the global temperature, it would appear. and and so it continued to rise into 50 million years ago, the Eocene thermal maximum. And since then, in fits and starts, has gone down by a tremendous amount. All the islands in Canada were forested then. There was no ice on Antarctica then. That was actually a 250 million year period, practically, where there was no ice on anywhere on the Earth. And now there's ice on both poles, a lot of it. And if you know people are saying the Arctic ice is melting, look at the satellite photograph, the most recent one of last winter. It, really, it's in April when it peaks, but that, that's when the polar bears go out and hunt seals on the ice. The entire Arctic Ocean is still freezing every winter, and then some out into the Bering Sea and out into towards Norway. And all of Hudson Bay gets frozen right over, and it's way south of the Arctic Ocean. So uh, the ice is not disappearing. It, it has lately become melted more in the summer than it did before. But this is good for fish production and therefore for seal production and therefore for polar bear production. That's one of the reasons probably why the polar bear population has increased so rapidly over the last 20 to 30 years. How many people know about the treaty that was signed by all polar nations in 1973, ending the unrestricted hunting of polar bears? That's what stopped them from declining, not, oh. not, not sea ice. Nobody tells us about this treaty. 
because they don't want you to know that because that is actually what stopped the decline of polar bears. And since then, they've grown from between six and 10,000 to between 30 and 50,000. And the Inuit government in Iqaluit on Baffin Island has passed a polar bear management plan, which allows them for the first time to kill a polar bear if it's going to kill them. You know? Oh, wow. You weren't allowed to kill a polar bear if it was going to kill you? No, no, no. There was only strict. Wow. Strict restrictions. Some countries still have a no polar bear killing rule, but they don't have, like Norway doesn't have a bunch of Inuit communities. Baffin Island has a whole bunch of Inuit communities where people live year round. And polar bears are so populated now that they're breaking into people's homes and ransacking them and actually killing people in the villages. So the, 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 they're not like trying to wipe out the polar bears. They just want the right to defend themselves. So when we look at, I guess, net zero carbon, that's been a topic. What does that mean, net zero? It means uh, industrial, civilizational, cultural, and evolutionary suicide for the human race, it would appear to me. We had about 1 billion people on this earth before we started using fossil fuels. Now we're approaching 8 billion people, and a huge part of the reason for there being that many people is that 80% of our energy is from fossil fuels. And if you look at all the different sectors and look at what can you actually do to replace fossil fuels, if they think wind and solar can do that, they are what we said used to say, whistling Dixie. I mean, that is completely a stupid idea because it won't work. It's already been shown, like in Texas, hundreds of people died in that blackout they had as a result of the cold. And it cost billions of dollars. And 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 they don't have like 90% wind and solar energy. They just have a small amount compared to the natural gas and, 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 and nuclear energy in the U.S. They have 96 nuclear plants in the U.S. If they didn't have those 96 nuclear plants, there'd be a lot more fossil fuels being burned. And so it comes right down to the fact that the only way to radically reduce fossil fuels, which I'm actually in favor of, not because of climate change, but because they are extremely valuable, especially for transportation. Anything that's stationary can be run on electricity with a wire. And that means all the buildings in the world which use 40% of our energy can be run with nuclear energy. Whereas today, the majority of energy for buildings is coming from fossil fuels, coal and gas. That could be eliminated almost entirely, except for some peaking might be required. But it looks as though we can build nuclear plants that can turn their power up and down now. So nuclear energy is the energy of the future. And the the fact that the people who are also worried about climate change from CO2 are against nuclear energy is about one of the biggest contradictory stupidities there is in the world today. Because there's, there's over 100 nuclear plants between Canada and the United States, and not one human being has been injured by them, never mind killed. Not, not one person. Whereas fossil fuels actually do cause a fair number of deaths on an annual basis because they make fire, and fire can kill you easily. So when so, you're saying no one's died, you're really talking since the, the incident on Mile Long or basically Mile Island? Incidents. Yeah. Nobody was even injured there. That was a totally overblown situation. It was an incident. There was a meltdown of the core. The reactor was destroyed, but no one was harmed. They evacuated huh. 
They evacuated pregnant women at one point, which was also totally unnecessary in terms of the minuscule amount of radiation. I mean, we live in a, a, a sea of radiation every day. That stuff coming down from the sun is called radiation. And part of it is ultraviolet radiation, which can burn the skin right off you and kill you if you stay in it too long. So it, just like with every other poisonous or dangerous situation, the poison is in the dose. So we can take a fair amount of radiation without it harming us, harming us because every body of every species has a cellular repair mechanism. And as long as you're not damaging the body faster than it repairs itself, you are fine. Every day we ingest things that are not good for us, that contaminants in our food and stuff, very little. And so it's not a problem. It's not hurting us. We either digest it or pass it through ourselves or whatever. But to remain healthy, you don't have to live in a cellophane bag. You know, you, yeah. you don't you don't have to live in a vacuum. As a matter of fact, that would not be terribly healthy. So there's always going to be some what you might call contaminants in the air, the water, the food. But as long as it's not high enough to harm you faster than you fix yourself, it's like when you get a cut. If you got a cut and it never healed, that would be a problem. Yeah. But if you get a cut, it does heal. And, and triple antibiotic makes it heal faster, even if it doesn't look infected, because it prevents bacteria, which automatically come to a wound. And I learned that some time ago when I, I had an infection that wouldn't heal. And so I, I found out about triple antibiotic and used it once many years ago. So now, even if I get a little nick, I put it on because it heals twice as fast as it would without it. So uh, as a producer or a as a farmer, how should I be thinking about this push for sustainability? And, and in some ways, there's there's carbon credits coming out now, and there's some other stuff that are that are helpful. But in regards to the consumer push and to the government push and just the push from the world right now, how should a producer be thinking about this? Well, the word sustainability is one of those squishy words that can be defined in any way you want. That's the problem with it. I define sustainability as using something at a rate that it will last a long time. So it's, I have a little ditty called renewable, clean, sustainable, and green. And renewable is easy. It means it grows by itself. That's why it's wrong in a way to call solar and wind energy renewable because all the technology that goes into building them is not renewable. And fossil fuels are required to mine the ore and transport the big pieces and put them together and everything. And then as, uh, wind and solar are actually a parasite on the larger economy uh, with all of the subsidies and tax credits and carbon, you know, all the stuff that goes along with that. They, they are they should rest in place. We should stop doing this. The only place we should have wind and solar is off the grid where you don't have electricity uh, from from the grid. I have a solar house in Mexico in Baja, and it works really well because the only alternative if you're off the grid is a generator, and they're noisy and dirty and break down. And yep. so we have a generator to back up our solar system because sometimes it gets cloudy even in Baja, Mexico. Uh, but in Canada, it makes no sense to have solar energy whatsoever. It is basically a subsidized system. 
And so that's, but renewable is like trees. Trees are by far the most important renewable source of energy and materials, even today. And they always have been ever since fire was invented and people started building houses out of wood. Trees are about 90% of all the living matter on this earth. So we should think about that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't use them though. And because, but we should use them sustainably, which is true in almost all countries in India and Japan, uh, sorry, and China have both created massive new forests over the last 20 to 30 years by planting trees in places that had been deforested previously. One of the benefits of intensive agricultural production is it uses less land to produce the same amount of food. And so we have actually increased our productivity by four or five times on the same area of land through technology and the use of chemicals. Uh, Some people don't like chemicals, but the fact is everything is a chemical or an, or, or an atom. Uh, And, you know, let's just maybe give you one example, GMOs, right? Genetic modification, which actually is another one of these terms like sustainable that is thrown about as if you know exactly what it means when actually traditional breeding is genetic modification. And every time two people have a child, it is genetic modification because the child is not identical genetically to either one of the parents. That's how evolution works is through genetic modification. But let's look at the genetic modification, which is about putting the genes from one species into another, like putting the genes from corn into rice to make golden rice, which could prevent 250 million children from being vitamin A deficient and Greenpeace is against it and continues to to block it after 20 years when it's been feasible to produce it commercially. So what is the bad thing in the GMO? That's what I want to know. What is its name? It doesn't yeah, I, have one. It, it'd be nice if there was a little bit more understanding of, like, instead of just GMO, right? Well, is it insertion? Is it deletion? Is what, What's actually going on? And people don't care. They don't know. They assume every GMO is the same thing and, it's, and that it's bad. Yes, but what's the bad thing? It has to be a thing. It, because, and everything has a name right? Every chemical has a name. We know how the scientists know how to name things. If it's got six atoms of this and four of that, and it's joined together in a certain way, they know the name of it, right? And there is no name for the bad thing in GMOs. Therefore, it's not only invisible, but it doesn't actually exist, (laughs) right? It's completely fake. Like radiation and CO2 are invisible, but they're not fake. They actually exist, right? Yeah, as, yes. to, as to how dangerous they are, that's a different matter. But they do exist at least. So you have to have an intelligent discussion around them. But trying to have an intelligent discussion around something that doesn't even have a name is rather difficult. <laughs> Absolutely. So then what, are you th- what do you think are the things that uh, the government and producers and everybody should be focused on outside of planting trees because planting trees and, and I guess switching homes over to nuclear uh, from fossil fuels. Those are two of the big ones you brought up or are there others? Well, with regard to animal husbandry, I think it's actually reached a fairly humane state and a, a fairly scientifically based state. Uh, I, I don't know of any, ra- any radical changes that have to be made. 
the, the fact is, if this net zero thing were to be realized, the people in the center of the cities would be the first to suffer. They, on their 30th floor of their condo facing north, they're not going to be able to grow their food on their balcony up there. Yeah. Right. So they, they're asleep at night while the trucks come in with the food and stock the stores for the next morning. I don't think they're even aware of that. I don't know where they think that food comes from on the shelves in the stores. But if we ended fossil fuels, there are, there, we're not going to go back to manual labor on the farms. Yeah. Right? It's hard to plow a section with, with, with little rakes and hoes. You, you have to have a tractor, a big tractor which is not going to be running on batteries anytime soon. And same with the trucks that bring 50 tons at a time of food into the cities. So if we just said, okay, no more fossil fuels for farming, the people would begin to die, starting in the center of the city and moving outwards. And it wouldn't be a pretty sight as this happened. It's sort of like when people are in lifeboats and crash on remote mountains in airplanes, bad stuff happens. Well, it's not just the transportation of the food. It's the plastics and uh, all the, the cardboard and everything else that you're using to package this process and then uh, process it through the, the meat processing facilities and the facilities that are packaging everything and, and shipping. It's, it's everything. Yes, it is. And, and, and why do we use plastic to wrap and package so much of our food if it's toxic? Or does it, you know, they, they act as though it miraculously becomes toxic in the ocean. That, and it's building up in all the species, don't you know? It's going to get to give them cancer and kill all the ocean. It's such a crock. Pla- the reason we package our food in plastic is to keep it from being contaminated, is to protect it, right? And the reason we use plastic is because it's non-toxic. It's inert. Most polymers are inert. All of their bonds are used up in the polymer connections between the molecules, like I, I tell people, think of a pearl necklace, right? That's, that's what a polymer looks like. Most of them are identical molecules joined together in a string. Most people don't know that cellulose is a polymer of glucose, which is the product of photosynthesis using CO2 and H2O to make sugar, which is the food for the rest of all of life, including us. And if only we would teach children that, I think they could figure that out in grade six if you would teach it to them what sugar is, what, what cellulose is. Cellulose was the first polymer produced by nature, probably the first polymer that ever existed because polymers don't just spring up out of nowhere. Most of them are of life origin. And for example, rayon is made from cellulose, from wood. I mean, how many people know that, that that's what rayon's made from? Cellophane is called cellophane because of cellulose. It's made, but nowadays we have more, more synthetic films. Most of the films that are put on our meat are PVC, polyvinyl chloride film. And it's, it's the best one there is. And because polyvinyl chloride has chlorine in it, they call it the poison plastic. And they call chlorine the devil's element. And the reason I left Greenpeace after 15 years in the top committee, I was a director of Greenpeace International from when I helped negotiate the founding of it in a dispute resolution. Uh, We created Greenpeace International. I was a director of it for seven years, and I found myself with a group of fellow directors, none of whom had any formal science education, 
who wanted to start a campaign for fundraising purposes to ban chlorine worldwide and focus on the devil's element, chlorine, right? And I said to them, you guys, it's one of the elements, you know, there's 94 elements in the periodic table. It's one of those. In other words, it's one of the building blocks of the universe. It's the 11th most common element in the Earth's crust. Adding it to drinking water was the biggest advance in the history of public health and in our spas and pools as well and hot tubs. And uh, not only that, 85% of all our pharmaceuticals are made with chlorine chemistry. And 15% of our pharmaceuticals have chlorine in them. And then there's salt, sodium chloride, guys. (laughs) Uh, it's an essential nutrient you know and it has chlorine in it so you can't ban chlorine worldwide or you'd basically be banning life from the the earth because every living thing has chlorine in it there you go it's crazy what money will get poured towards when people are uneducated about where it's going right yes it's true and so i left and they started that campaign it didn't actually pan out all that well because there was a lot of pushback of the nature that I just described. I, I said, you guys got to have a slightly more nuanced approach to this. You know, maybe there are certain chlorinated compounds and there are like dioxin and PCBs and DDT. Those are all chlorinated hydrocarbons. Uh, but, and, and so they should be controlled because they can be dangerous under certain circumstances. Even that doesn't mean they should be banned though. Uh, you know, DDT is really important for malaria control and, during the time when Greenpeace was at the forefront of wanting to ban DDT completely, they refused to accept the difference between broadcasting it over farm fields and using it to control mosquitoes, which pass malaria from one person to another. And the the classic case is between South Africa and Mozambique, just to the north, where South Africa used DDT and Mozambique did not. And they had epidemics of malaria where South Africa did not. And it's a deadly disease. So it's, uh, it's worth it to use a chemical like that sparingly and judiciously, but not to ban it outright. So if you had unlimited funds and you could choose to do one thing to improve the, the health of the planet, what would it be? Well, not just the health of the planet, but the, the health of the economy and, yes. and of people. I, I would build uh, 4,000 nuclear plants in, in all the different countries. China has just announced 115 nuclear plant build in the next 10 years. So 10 a year. And they see the future. They know what the future is better than we do. And, the, and again, the idea that people worried about CO2 from fossil fuels would be against nuclear energy, which could do so much more than any other technology. Hydroelectric does it too, but there's only a certain amount of that. And countries that are flat and dry can't have hydroelectric energy, whereas nuclear can be anywhere. And, you know, people should look up the future of nuclear is in using the used nuclear fuel, which still has more than 90 percent of its energy in it. It's not waste. It's not waste. It contains plutonium-239, which is a fissile isotope that was produced in the reactor. It's a long lecture, but I'm not going to give it now. But (laughs) the truth is... Russia's BN-800, look up Russia, BN, standing for big nuclear, I think, dash 800. This is a fast neutron reactor. There's also a BN-600. Both of them are on the Caspian Sea, operating commercially, producing electricity. 
And they are the future of nuclear energy going forward because all the used nuclear fuel and all the uranium that's in canisters as uranium hexafluoride when they did the enrichment process, all of that can be put back into the nuclear fuel cycle and used as fuel. Sort of like the parable of the loaves and fishes where Jesus took one fish and four loaves of bread and fed a multitude. We can take the tiny bit of uranium-235 there is in this world which is the only fissile isotope, and we can convert all the uranium-238 and all the thorium into fissile fuel through the nuclear reactor process. It's a miracle, and everybody should know about it. It's, it's not that hard to know about. Yeah. It, it does take a, a little bit of learning what these things are, but they are just elements and isotopes of elements. And, and if it, you know, everybody should learn the periodic table, at least... Mm-hmm. During a semester, you should have it in front of you and see the different tables of, you know, the halogens, which is chlorine, bromine, iodine, uh, adenosine, and fluorine. All of those are in the same column because they all have similar properties. And, you know, it. Yeah. Yeah. Just understanding how the periodic table is laid out and why it's laid out in that way and how you can read it to understand what's what's really going on there. That's right. And every kid should should know that at least the basics of it. So that when someone says something about that, they can go back to it. It, 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 it does, you know, lifelong learning, it's, that's, that is such a huge problem. And I'm so glad to see the parents re- revolting in the, in the United States, at least. I don't know what the state of affairs here in Canada is. When it comes down to pork production, I support reason and looking for possibilities to improve, always always looking for improvement, looking for efficiencies, looking for higher quality food coming out from the process. Uh, But ending the use of fossil fuels is not the the correct approach. The correct approach, if you you really wanted to reduce fossil fuel consumption, the the nuclear energy is the right way to go. That's why I would build 4,000 nuclear plants. There's 443 now. Most mm-hmm. people don't realize that. The United States has 96 operating nuclear plants every day, running 24-7, producing reliable, cost-effective energy, and, and, and on a very small footprint. That's another thing. The wind and solar has such a massive footprint. You need does. to cover the whole country in it, practically, to get enough electricity. And then it and would what, be, be 20 to 30% of the time. And, and what's going to happen in 20, 25 years when all these things are falling apart? Yeah, and, and the other thing is they only last 20 years, whereas a gas plant lasts 40 years, a coal plant will last 40, 50, 60 years, a nuclear plant will last 60 to 80 years at least. And you may just have to refurbish it even then uh, without having to build a new one. Whereas wind and solar are, they are such a stupid thing. It's hard to imagine how it got to where, but it, it's the crony capitalists got in there and like just recently, yesterday, they announced that the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow had contracted a wind farm to provide them with all their electricity, a wind farm in Scotland. Yeah. Because the wind was blowing too hard, the government had to give them half a billion pounds because they get paid for not producing energy when the wind is blowing too hard and they have to tether the blades because otherwise they blow the windmills over. Right. (laughs) 
And that's how it works. So these people are raking in dough. They pay them more money than they would have if the windmills were working. Wow. Or when they have to tether them due to high winds. So they don't work when the wind isn't blowing up to a certain level, too. A five-mile-an-hour wind is no use, right? So there they don't work. Then they work for a certain span of wind from this to this, and then they don't work at all when the wind is blowing too hard. And they get paid for that. A lot of money. Half a billion, 500 million pounds. That's crazy. Yeah. They They don't pay pork producers not to produce pork. No, that'd be nice, though. They don't do that. (laughs) No, absolutely. But I mean, so this has been awesome. And it's kind of wrapped things up. We like to do a thing where we do a golden nugget. But before that, would you be able to share something with the audience that most people you work with or uh, your colleagues do not know about you? Do not know about me? Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm pretty much of a... uh... I don't know what they don't know about me. No, I don't know anything that they don't know about me. I've written three books in which I've exposed myself more or less completely. Okay. Uh, (laughs) What they don't know about me. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, no. No, I'm not not going there. Yeah, no, that's fair. (laughs) Uh, What's a golden nugget you might have for listeners? Uh, a uh, A bit of life wisdom that you'd be willing to share. Well, as I mentioned earlier, lifelong learning is a really important thing to keep in your head. Never think that you know it all uh, about anything. And, and you know, the, the ditty is, uh, when I hear new information, Tom, I change my mind. What do you do? Right. And so the, so many people think that, you know, you stop learning when you're 21 and then you know everything for the rest of your life and you're, you're, you know, your brain gets fossilized at that point and that's not a good approach to life because uh, and and my other favorite one is uh niels bohr nobel prize in physics often attributed to yogi bear of the u.s yankees because he popularized it predictions are difficult especially about the future that's my favorite uh short bit of wisdom because the future is not it's not possible to predict the future the crystal ball is a mythical object, and the computers' models of climate that they are saying are predicting the future climate, it's what you put in them determines what comes out of them. There's not yeah. some magic process that happens inside the computer that takes the inputs, the assumptions that you put in it, and predicts the future like a crystal ball, which actually isn't a real thing, of course. Yeah. You know, and neither is a computer model of the climate a real thing. It's an exercise. It can be helpful sometimes, but it doesn't predict the future. And basing policy on computer models of the future is uh, irrational and uh, I'd I'd say just plain uh, useless to try to do that. Um, Sure. I'd also like people to be outside more. Yeah. If some, somebody said to me once, of course there's a climate catastrophe. You just have to look out the window. And uh, I'm going like, have you ever gone out there? <laughs> you on the window to see what's going on? And so people should take up outdoor activities. 
I, we've gone through the gamut, Eileen and I, from, you know, boating to hiking to climbing to skiing to uh, snowshoeing to biking to now, we're, you know, we're getting on. We got e-bikes, but you still have to pedal. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're just we just enjoy being outside a lot because that's where where the world is. And too many people spend too much time in front of the tube and in front of the screen. Absolutely. Well, Patrick, we really appreciate you hopping on the Popular Pig podcast to share your experiences and your your wisdom. And uh, we really appreciate you uh, being on this podcast. Thanks very much, Matthew. I can tell I should probably go and learn a bit more about pigs. (laughs) No, sounds good. I'm just kidding. I I love (laughs) pigs. I love pork. Uh, They're the cutest animals, especially when they're nursing eight piglets. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.